that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. <laughs> this is our Father's world, and he loves us, and he loves you. Amen? Let me pray. Merciful, loving Father, we come thankful, so thankful, that you describe yourself as love. And we love you and thank you for life and breath, for consciousness sufficient that we might worship, hold you in awe, reverence thee. We are amazed by your grace. In truth, it was grace that taught our heart fear, and yet grace our fears relieved. For when we come to Mount Sinai and perceive the awful thundering and quaking of the mountain, such that it would surely fall on us, we tremble. But thy spirit has bid us come to thee, for you are mighty to save. Now this day train us to be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Train us to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind to regard, to think of each other as more important than ourselves. This is how you, Lord Jesus, God in the flesh, came to us. Now speak, O Lord, to thy servants, thy slaves, for humbly we approach thy holy scripture, seeking to hear your voice. Amen. Take your copy of sacred scripture and t stand with me. John chapter 13. We will read through <clears throat> verse 17. John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. The word holy breathed out, inerrant word of God. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing his hour had come that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, Jesus rises from supper and lays aside his garments and, taking a towel, girds himself about. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wipe the disciples' feet and to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And so he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered, What I do, you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. 
Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. And so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Amen, amen, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. The word of God. Amen. You may be seated. Beloved brothers and sisters of Providence Presbyterian, we are come today to this chapter, chapter 13, which is the end of Jesus' public ministry. In fact, nothing more is said of Christ engaging the crowds, the multitudes who were following him from this point on. And what now follows in John's Gospel is the Upper Room Discourses, chapters 13 through 17, his crucifixion, death, and burial, chapter 18 and 19, his resurrection, resurrection appearances, and ascension, chapters 20, 21. In fact, this section of John's Gospel is just glorious, glorious. It's a, it's a treasure trove of new revelation from God. Among other things, we have a startling, listen carefully, a startling revelation of God as binatarian, bicycle, binatarian in the father-son relationship that is just pervasive throughout John. But when we come to the final discourses, 14 through 17, a tacit Trinitarianism is revealed as Jesus opens up the role of the Holy Spirit in the believer, in the church, the comforter, the paraclete whom he and the Father would send. And one of the first achievements of the Holy Spirit was the inspiration, the breathing out of New Testament Scripture through the apostles. At first orally through their apostolic preaching and then written, inscripturated. The theological development here began with inspiration as God breathed out New Testament scripture through the apostles' preaching and writing of the gospels and epistles. Inspiration then moved to 
inscripturation. They scripted it. They wrote it out in scripturation as the spirit of truth oversaw the penning of the New Testament documents. And ultimately, through providential oversight, the collection of the 27 books of the New Testament. Thus, inspiration brought about inscripturation, which is followed by the Holy Spirit's activity of illumination through both the preaching and the reading of Scripture. As men and women, boys and girls, go in and out of biblical pasture looking for, listening to the Master's voice because... Jesus said, my sheep know my voice, do you? My sheep, his sheep, they know the master's voice. So John uniquely provides what the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, do not. For in the synoptics, we learn that Jesus ate the, the final meal with his disciples in the upper room and there instituted the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion. And yet, curiously, John says nothing about the Lord's Supper, which raises the question, why? Why is nothing said by John concerning the institution of Holy Communion? Helpful for pondering's sake to realize John is the last gospel the Holy Spirit will breathe out to the church. Hmm. Well, some assert it is because John has already spoken of the Lord's Supper in chapter 6, where Jesus speaks of eating my flesh and drinking my blood. But in chapter 6, John is building on what he had stated earlier in the verbal phrases that those who believe are coming face to face relationally toward me and they don't just believe about me, but they're actually believing, faithing, trusting into me. We must see that eating and drinking, John 6, is a metaphor flowing directly from the context of Jesus saying, I am the bread of life, after feeding 5,000. This eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood does not suddenly emerge as a sacramental discussion. John 6 is not about the sacrament of Holy Communion. Eating and drinking Christ's flesh and blood was a, in that context, a graphic way of saying people must take Christ into their innermost being or person. So in chapter 6, Jesus challenges us to enter the closest and most intimate relationship with him. Am I relationally pursuing him? Is my family relationally pursuing him? Are you are you, as the husband, leading your wife in this? And if he is not, then responsibility falls on you for yourself and your children. 
Your ultimate allegiance is to a higher Lord and Master than your husband. Christ's bread of life teaching did not refer to the sacrament. Why? Why does John say nothing? I believe it is because the Holy Spirit's breathed out concern was that the inner significance of what happened in the upper room was in danger of being crowded out, overlaid with ceremonial, materialistic concepts. The Holy Spirit's concern through this last of the Gospel accounts was more with the meaning of what took place than with the ritual itself. John chapter 13 is focused on relationships, not ritual. The first four verses, Christ's final days, if you have, I trust you do, I pray you do, the, your scripture open, John 13, the first four verses, Christ's final days have entered a decisive phase. The cross is imminent. In fact, it's Thursday night. John 13, it's Thursday night. The next day, Friday at 3 p.m., he'll die on a cross. The cross is imminent. Observe then the incredible self-awareness Jesus had in, that is told us here in these opening verses. First one, knowing his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Verse 3, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. <laughs> He had come forth from God, saying, Behold, I have come to do thy will, O God. A body hast thou prepared for me. Hebrews 10. The eternal Son of God, God the Son, had taken to himself manhood. God the Word became also what he was not, a man, fully man, fully God, the man. And thus he who now was fully God and fully man, the second Adam, was going back to God to be given Adamic dominion, which Adam had lost in the fall, Genesis 3. So incredible is the self-awareness that he was God, a very God, God the Son, imminently going back to God the Father. His, his death was a passage to the Heavenly Father where he would be given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and tongues might serve him, and his dominion will be an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Maranatha. Amen. Consider that Jesus knew that the hour had come to depart out of the world. And his thoughts? Well, as we've established, horizon on his horizon, 
is his sacrificial death on sinners' behalf. It is strange, perhaps, to us that many who are impressed with Christianity see no need of the cross. They're ready to admire Jesus' life. They like his moral teaching but they will not bring themselves to believe that Jesus Christ died on behalf of their sin and that without his death, they will die in their sins. This is a scandal of Christianity, a stone of stumbling, and those who stumble over this will enter eternity without a mediator, without thee mediator, yet it is the heart of the gospel. Now observe the final two phrases of verse 1, the final two phrases of verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, or he loved them to the uttermost, or he loved them eternally. Although we may think that we are at a distance from Christ, yet we ought to know that Jesus is looking at us. And we have no reason to doubt that he still bears the same affection which he demonstrated just before his death. This conviction ought to be fixed in our hearts. John Calvin. Christ Jesus loves his own who are in the world. <laughs> and he loves us to the uttermost, eternally. Now consider some deeper theology. John chapters 1 through 12, there are two significant words and their attendant concepts that appear frequently. The word for life appears 50 times in the first 12 chapters. The word for light appears 32 times. Chapters 13 through 17, though, life is found but six times, and light doesn't even appear from 13 on. What's that? In contrast, agape love is found six times only in chapters 1 through 12. But in chapters 13 through 17, not even the whole of the book, 13 through 17, agape love appears 31 times. Clearly, the emphasis shifts from a metaphysical focus upon the deity of God the Son as both life and light to a relational focus upon communion with God from the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. That's the deeper theology that is here. 
And we are eternally amazed at this overflowing gift of God's grace, enabled by the Spirit, offered by the Son, through the Son, and resting upon the Father. Or as Ephesians 2.18 says, For through him, Jesus, we both have our access in one Spirit to the Father. Wow. Chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. Verse 4, rose from supper. The present tense, rises from supper, is vivid. It's almost as if John is seeing the scene played out again in his eyes. He's seeing Jesus rises. He lays aside his garments now Luke tells us what likely took place just before verse 4. And there arose also a dispute among them <laughs> as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. What a dumb thing to ask. <laughs> and who put their foot in their mouth first? Hey, who do you think's great? I'm the good. Luke, silently Jesus rises lays aside his garments, likely down to a loincloth, a slave's apparel, and takes a towel long enough to wipe their feet, yet being wrapped around him. And then Jesus began to wash the disciples' feet, wiping them with a towel around his waist. Chrysostom suggests that the Greek indicates that Jesus likely began first washing Judas's feet before coming to Peter. Verses 21 through 30 give strong indication that Judas was indeed seated next to Jesus. This alone is eminently worth meditating on. Judas. Jesus put Judas right beside himself. Well, Peter objects in verses 6 through 8, and, and this comment by commentator Temple is profound. Listen carefully. We are ready, perhaps, to be humble before God, but we do not want him to be humble in his dealings with us. We should, like him who has the right to glory in his goodness and greatness, then we, as we pass from his presence, might be entitled to pride ourselves on such achievements as distinguish us above other men. Man's humility does not begin with the giving of service. It begins with the readiness to receive it. For there can be much pride and condescension in our giving of service. That's when I'm hoping everybody's watching me do this. Consider Christ's words in verse 7. You look at them. What I do, you do not understand now, but you shall understand hereafter. And listen to Calvin's 
incredible pastoral insight. We are taught by these words that we ought simply to obey Christ even though we, we may not understand why he wishes this or that thing be done. The man who refuses to obey the command of God because he does not know the reason behind it is haughty, Calvin. He goes on to say, but this admonition has a still more extensive meaning, and, and that is that we should not take it ill to be ignorant of those things which God wishes to be hidden from us for a time. Would you listen to that again? We should not take it ill to be ignorant of those things which God wishes to be hidden from us for a time. For this kind of ignorance is more learned than any other kind of knowledge. <laughs> when we permit God to be wise above us. <laughs> the secret things belong, say it with me, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Well, deep thoughts again from Calvin, verses 7 through 8. The true wisdom of faith, therefore, is to approve and embrace with reverence whatever proceeds from God as being done with propriety, properness, and in good order. Nor is there any other way in which his name can be sanctified by us. For if we do not believe... <laughs> that whatever he does is done for a very good reason, our flesh, being naturally stubborn, will continually murmur and will not render to God the honor due him. In short, until a man renounce the liberty of judging as to the works of God. I'll decide if that's good for me or not. Still, pride will always lurk under the garb of humility. Hmm. Pride will still lurk under the garb of humility. Beware the pleasant words that conceal a proud heart. Wisen up. Beware the pleasant words that conceal a proud heart. God sees what we do not always perceive, but with the passage of time. Verses 12 through 15. Imagine the scene. Christ has just finished washing their feet, their dirty, dusty, muddy water, now feet. 
and has just likely finished washing John's feet, who was seated on the other side of Christ. And silently, he puts his garments back on and reclines at table. There is utter silence as all eyes are on him. And he says, do you know what I have done to you? It's much like the question he put to Simon in Luke 7. Simon, do you see this woman? Pastoral reflection. Think. Quit speaking hastily. Quit acting hastily. Ponder. Think. Meditate. And listen, if you are one gifted with the gift of talk, the gift of gab, one from whom flows many words, you need to consider Jesus' question. Just because I have had a thought does not mean I have to speak it. And perhaps I ought not to have had the thought. Proverbs ten nineteen, when there are many words Transgression is unavoidable, <laughs> but the one who restrains his or her lips is wise. Well, Christ explains the reason for what he just did. He basically says, I, your master and Lord, have given you an example to be followed by all the godly, that none should begrudge serving another, no matter how mundane or lowly that service is. Calvin says here, the reason why the love of the brethren is despised is that every man thinks more highly of himself than he ought and despises almost every other person. Calvin. Listen to him again. I, am, I have become incredibly amazed at the pastoral wisdom of John Calvin in his commentaries. Quote, Nor did he intend merely to inculcate or teach modesty, but likewise to lay down this rule of brotherly love that they should serve one another. For there is no brotherly love where there is not a voluntary subjection in assisting a neighbor. For what does a mortal sinner saved by grace imagine himself to be when he refuses to bear the burdens of brethren, performing those deeds that are needful? <laughs> in short, Jesus means that the man who does not think of associating with weak or difficult to deal with people claims more than he has a right to claim and has too high an opinion of himself, end quote. <laughs> That's... Mm. The point of what Jesus has said is that we should be ready to perform the lowliest service for one another. No act of service is beneath us. Well, why then does John say nothing about the institution of Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper? 
because the first century church and the church through the ages has tended to miss, to fail at the inner significance of what took place in that upper room, preferring instead a, a fixed focus exclusively on ceremonial, liturgical ritual while ignoring issues of humility or pride, forgiveness or unforgiveness, grace or bitterness, selflessness or selfishness. The Spirit of God's concern was and is more with the meaning of what took place than the actual ritual. So John's record in John 13 of the upper room is focused on humility, servanthood, selflessness, relationships, not on liturgical ritual. A pastoral reflection. So as you come, and maybe you arrive early enough to see the, the, the blessed placement of these emblems on these tables, you, you will observe that there's a, a certain decorum in the way that it's done. They don't bounce in, skipping, flop it down. There's just a, why? Because of what it represents, what it represents. But what do you see? Do, do you primarily just see the grape juice, the wine, the bread? Is that what you see and how everybody's very silent and somber and stands and walks silent? Is that what you see? Or do you say you see your Savior, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, demonstrating agape love, which he had for his own and still has for his own? loves us to the uttermost eternally. Do you see your Savior amidst the arguments as to who is greatest, silently rising and turning first to Judas? He washes the feet of his betrayer and then washes Peter's and all twelve, regards himself, reclines amidst dead silence and asks, do you understand what I've just done to you? We would gladly wash the feet of our divine Lord. But to our dismay, he insists on washing ours. And then bids us wash our neighbor's feet as well. Whose messed up life or messed up world does he want you to reach out in love to? Whose offensive behavior, attitude, words, actions does he want you to reach out in love to? Who is your betrayer? Who has given you offense by a very great wrong? Jesus would have you follow his example, figuratively, even literally washing their feet, 
demonstrating the love you've received from him to them. The same apostle speaks in the first epistle and says, we, we love because he first loved us. And if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. There well may be liars in our midst this day. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. God measures my love for him by watching my love for others, particularly those who have offended me, whom I don't like to spend time with. First Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, take your Bibles with me as we, I pray, seamlessly move now into communion. First Corinthians 11, turn to verse 17. Verse 17. We'll read through and listen to Calvin wondrously explain some things that I think will impact us mightily. 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. we'll read through verse 28. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together for the, not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that schisms exist among you. That's the word. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be heresies, that's the word, among you, in order that those who are approved may become evident among you. Key verse, key verse. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another one gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have less than you? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I shall not praise you. But I received from the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often, uh, and for the in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
shall become guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment, assessment by God unto himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. Listen to Calvin and look at the scripture. Heresy they made to consist in disagreement as to doctrine, that's verse 19. And schism, on the contrary, in alienation of affection. Catch that. Heresy focused on disagreement as to doctrine. Schism focused upon alienation of affection. As when anyone withdrew from the church from envy or from dislike of the pastors or from ill nature. It is true that the church cannot but be torn asunder by false doctrine, and thus heresy is the root and origin of schism. And it is also true that envy or pride is the mother of almost all heresies. But at the same time, it is of advantage to distinguish in this way between these two terms. Schisms, then are either secret grudges when we do not see that agreement which ought to exist among the pious, when inclinations at various with each other are at work, when everyone is mightily pleased with his own way and finds fault with everything that is done by others. Heresies are when the evil proceeds to such a pitch that open hostility is discovered and persons deliberately divide themselves into opposing parties. Hence, in order that believers might not feel discouraged on seeing the Corinthians torn with divisions, the apostle turns round this occasion of offense in an opposite direction, and that is verse 19. Look at it carefully. Listen to Calvin. Intimating that the Lord does rather by such trials make proof of his people's constancy, steadfastness in the faith and in the love of Christ. A lovely consolation. So far, says Paul, should we be from being troubled or cast down when we do not see complete unity in the church, but on the contrary, some threatenings of separation from lack of proper agreement, that even if sex should start up, we ought to remain firm and constant. For in this way, this is all Calvin, hypocrites are detected. In this way, on the other hand, the sincerity of believers is tried and tested. 
For as this gives occasion for discovering the fickleness of those who were not rooted in the Lord's word and the wickedness of those who had assumed the appearance of good men, so the good afford a more signal, significant manifestation of their constancy and sincerity. But observe what Paul says, there must be. For he intimates by this expression that this state of matters, this thing that Providence Presbyterian has walked through the last year plus, is not by chance, but by the sure providence of God. Because he has in it the view to try to test his people as gold in the furnace. And if it is agreeable to the mind of God, it is consequently <laughs> expedient. So the sovereign providential oversight of our father is firmly stamped in 2020. And we know this day how Jesus would have us approach this table. So dear friend, if you are not a member of this church and yet you profess the gospel of Jesus Christ, sincerely believe yourself to be one of his children, are in good standing with an evangelical church where the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, we welcome you with open arms to participate in this holy sacrament as the communicant members of this church, guided by the deacons, will come forward for the bread, juice, and wine. Now, who should not partake? If you are harboring unforgiveness or bitterness, for your sake, do not partake. At your own physical peril, you'll partake and will be seen by Christ as one betraying him at table. If you are practicing known sin in a willful, ongoing, habitual manner, do not partake. For to do so would be to crucify afresh the Son of God, putting him to shame by your willfully chosen behavior. It is guilty sinners saved by grace who are sincere in their faith pursuit of Jesus who partake of Holy Communion. They have no stones in their hands to throw, particularly at a brother or sister. They have no known ongoing willfully practiced pattern of sin in their life. Such are by Christ Jesus lovingly welcomed to his table today. So elders, if you'll come forward, deacons, if you'll begin releasing, they will free you by rows to come forward, receive the bread, receive the wine or the juice, and then go back to your seats and we will collectively share together. <laughs>